new music industry podcast, and I'm David Andrew Let's dig in. Today I'm chatting with author, life coach, and international speaker, Dobbs Franks. How are you today, Dobbs? Well, I'm sensational because it's a beautiful day here in Melbourne. Oh, I'm sure it is. I would love to be there right now. <laughs> well, it's, just, it's early spring, which is a perfect time of year. Ah, uh, yeah. Spring is great. We're just about to head into fall here in Calgary, so it's a little cooler outside. But, right. But it's all right. So just so my audience gets a sense of who you are and what you do, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm an Arkansas hillbilly, <laughs> born in the hills of Arkansas, back in well actually just at the end of the depression which i still think was no accident grew up in in, in a parsonage my dad was a methodist preacher and uh, i managed i was the firstborn and of course they had to the firstborn had to have all the advantages and so uh, in arkansas in those days the thing that happened is you got, got the family name for your first name and your middle name was the name you're going to be called by and so when I was born, the bishop of the Arkansas, Louisiana area of the Methodist Church was Bishop Hoyt M. Dobbs. So I got the bishop's name as my middle name and the name I'm to be known as. Um, but but I, I don't think Dad made any points with the bishop because he still had to ride a horse to work. And then I uh, just grew up in very small towns. So I think the largest town I li- lived in before I went to, to New York to graduate school was about 6,000. And uh, so I'm, a, I'm really a country boy and uh, grew up on the banks of the White River, which is all, I think, now very fortunate because I learned to cope with the river, the hills, and uh, um, all the things that one does in the country, the gravel roads, the ice and snow, and, and, uh, and the extreme heat in the summertime. And so I sort of was prepared for the rest of the world, even though I didn't know that at the time. And uh, um, then I got my bachelor's degree in Arkansas. I entered the uh, university as a math major because in those days, if you were going to be a preacher, which I intended to do, I intended to follow my father's footsteps, you were expected to get a liberal arts degree and then go to seminary for graduate school. So I entered university as a math major found that didn't work so the second year I switched to uh, choral conducting and organ because I still intended to have a life full time in the church and planned to go to Union Seminary in New York for my graduate work and that didn't work so my third year I um, changed to piano which was much more comfortable, hmm. and that and that year I uh, managed to uh, be selected to accompany the new voice teacher who had just arrived from getting her master's in Cincinnati um, to accompany her in recitals, which ended up uh, in, in, at the end of the school year in June. Boy, oh my God, that was nineteen something fifty four, I guess. Um, we got married. So I married my teacher, which was a bit of a scandal in in the in the, in a church school, but never mind. That's what happened. And uh, then that year, I uh, won, or the father, the year, year after I got married, I won the Memphis and Mid South Piano Scholarship um, Piano Competition, which gave me a thousand dollars scholarship to the graduate school of my choice. 
So obviously I chose the Juilliard School in New York. And on the day I got my degree in um, Arkansas, I was, dad took me to Memphis at the end of the baccalaureate to take, to go to New York to graduate school. And I got on the first, first time I'd ever been in an airplane, first time I'd ever crossed the Mason-Dixon line. And when I landed in New York, the first time I'd ever seen the sea. So uh, I remember one of the funny things that happened. I got in a taxi at Idlewild, which it was then, or Nick Kennedy now. And I said to the driver, take me to the Juilliard School, please. And he said, where's that, buddy? And I thought, my God, there was someone in New York who didn't know where the Juilliard School was. <laughs> and I said, I said oh, well, it's a 120 Claremont Avenue. He said, what's what, um, a borough? And I broke out crying because I'd never heard the word borough. I didn't know what the hell he was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he said to me, oh, oh, don't worry, buddy. I'm sure we'll find it. It's probably in Manhattan. And so he delivered me <clears throat> to the Juilliard School on that Monday morning, 30 minutes before the time of my audition. And I, so I sat outside the recital hall in Juilliard School waiting for my audition and watched every pianist I'd ever heard of and whose recordings I had walk in. In, Madame Levine uh, in, uh, was was the head of the the jury that day. Catherine Bacon, whom I wanted to study with, Rosalind Turek, whose recording of the Bach I had and hated, and uh, Beveridge Webster, who, whose recording of the Brahms I was going to play, uh, was there. Everybody you'd ever heard of walked in to hear me play, and I, I really panicked, but uh, managed somehow. I don't know how. Managed somehow to get through the audition. And went down to the um, cafeteria to have a cup of coffee to sort of recover. And while I was having my coffee, uh, a nice young Negro man came and sat down with the same with me and started chatting. And I realized, with no particular anything, but I actually realized that it was the first time I'd ever been at the same table with a, with a Negro. Hmm. And uh, that uh, that. And we actually became very good friends, and that was the beginning of my <laughs> introduction to New York and to the Juilliard School. And uh, so that's that's the, the way I be, became a musician, because Juilliard, you had no choice. You, you were there because you were a musician, even though I was a, a very big fish from a very small pond. <laughs> and it was a, quite a shock to realize that everyone I met could play the piano better than I could, and that was quite a shock. But at any rate, I think one of the most important things, David, is my father gave me a piece of advice when I left home to go to university at the age of 15. Dad said to me, don't spend time and effort trying to find your niche. Just just relax and do what you feel you have to do, and your niche will find you. I thought he was mad at the time because I thought (laughs) what I had to do was go go looking. But it, it turned out that 11 years after that day, my niche finally found me, and I was sitting here in Melbourne in, in uh, October, on October the 29th, 1960, um, waiting in my dressing room at the Princess Theatre to go conduct the opening night of West Side Story, the pr- premiere here in Australia. And I, this was the first time I'd ever had a job as a conductor from the beginning, where I was the music director from the beginning, rather than as the assistant and taking over, which is what had happened with the three previous jobs I had. But while I was sitting there realizing that I actually had been recommended by Bernstein to come to Australia, uh, and that I was had was the music director and the conductor from the beginning, I thought, well, 
that's the writing on the wall. And I decided before I walked into the pit that night that, yes, I'm going to make my life now as a, as a conductor. And uh, that was quite a revelation to me because, of course, I was making quite a decent living as a pianist and never occurred to me that I would end up conducting, which is another story. I mean, I could talk about that story forever, but uh, I, I uh, had no intention of uh, ever being a conductor, but it happened. And, and, and so since that day in 1960, I have really had the most fantastic life as a conductor primarily. And, of course, I married eventually the right person i'd divorced the first one but it was a good it was a good rehearsal for the the right one and we were married uh, in 1966 and um, had the most fantastic life because she was a fabulous violinist and we just played well, we, 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 there was one time when we gave a 110 most time concerts in three years hmm. and that's a lot of 16th notes i tell you <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and so we had, uh, it, so we both had had a rehearsal. Her, her her husband had died, and so um, as I said to my father, who as I, who was a preacher, and of course had a a lot of counseling to do with p potential marriages and such things. And I said, Dad, I found the perfect recipe for the perfect marriage, and he said, What's that, son? I said, Find a a widow with three school age children and the paternal grandmother living in and um, he said well that sounds like some hell that's one hell of a recipe yeah. but but that's what works i mean it was it was that unfortunately she died 10 years ago but she was 18 years my senior and um, and her she made it to 92 and her poor old body just wore out it was nothing any more dramatic than that but we did have 42 of the most magnificent years anyone could have ever dreamed of and if anyone wants to know how to have a perfect marriage, I could tell them. Find a, a widow with three school-age children and the <laughs> grandmother living in. And because there are not a lot of them around. And it's, it's, an, it's an added advantage if they're a musician. <laughs> That's fantastic. And thank you for sharing that. You know, I don't think anyone could blame you for dropping out a math major. I'm pretty sure I would not have lasted in that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had I had to declare something, and, and, and I actually enjoy, I still do enjoy, you know, adding up and that sort of thing. I feel like that's a, maybe a rare trait as a musician, but, you know, your, your math skills do tend to get stronger as you learn to play music, I, def, I find. Well, the thing, the thing that, that, that's best is uh, I, I'm a, I, my favorite hobby is playing bridge, but preferably competitive bridge. And I can now uh, count up to 13, which is wonderful. <laughs> That's amazing. I don't know anybody that can do that. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> kidding. Uh, yeah, and you know, you sent over your book to me. Thank you very much. It's awesome. Why don't you tell us a bit about your new book, So You Want to Be a Musician? Why did you write it, and what can we expect to learn in it? Well, I had no intention of writing it, <laughs> and uh, the actual publisher um, played triangle for me 25 years ago hmm. in some in some gig I was doing in Queensland here in Australia, and uh, he uh, ended up um, having a publishing company both there in America and in in here in Australia, and <clears throat> but still tried to conduct occasionally and. He had uh, brought me up 
to, to Queensland uh, to help him get through a, a tough time he was having in a, conducting an amateur production of Les Miserables. So we were sitting out on the balcony at three o'clock in the morning of the motel where we were staying, and I was trying to help him through all the the difficulties he found himself in. And I think over a, a, a decent-sized bourbon and a, a lovely cigar, somehow or another, uh, the whole thing came up about the, 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 what ended up as a book. And he said, you really must write a book and I'll publish it. <laughs> well, I don't know why, why, why I listened to him. I should have just jumped off the balcony at that point, but I didn't. And what, what happened is when my wife died, of course, I had one hell of an adjustment to make after 42 perfect years and didn't know what to do. So I tried to being an internet marketer because I thought that would be easy. I could sit in front of the computer and make a fortune. And so I sat in front of the computer and I made a fortune, but I discovered after a few months that it cost me more to make the money than the money I made. Mm -hmm. And so so, uh, I eventually gave that up because I was headed for bankruptcy as I kept it up. And so in in desperation, you know, just looking for something to, to uh, as a way of life, because I was completely lost with, uh, with Ruth's death. And um, I don't know why, but I went to a seminar uh, at, held at a, a, a racing club here in, in Melbourne, where the guy was um, um, explaining how you could get rich buying and selling property. And I thought that would be a good idea. I could go buy a house and sell it and get rich. And I thought that's just the perfect thing for, you know, an old musician. But in the middle of this seminar, a man had bought his 15 minutes to promote a book of his. And a man by the name of Paul Blackburn, who you see wrote the forward to my book, made this speech. And he was a professional life coach and had founded the organization called Beyond Success, which had the distinction and the, the award for being the best life coaching training school in Australasia. Hmm. So he had his 15 minutes to promote his book, and I was fascinated. I think he was a wonderful speaker and quite, quite mesmerizing, so I bought the book and went away uh, determined to go buy some houses to get rich, but I had this book to read. And I read the book, and to make a terrible, hideous story quite short and painful, I, uh, <laughs> I decided to contact him and to, to uh, try to see what I could do to become a life coach. And what I could do, which turned out to be the, the, the answer, was to dedicate a year of my life to the training of becoming a coach, spend a ridiculous fortune to enroll, and travel to Canberra, which is uh, a day's drive from Melbourne, um, for a boot camp at least once a month, which meant arriving there uh, as best as possible, sort of on Thursday night and coming back on Monday. And that was the training that we did each month. And so I spent a year doing that, and I'm actually looking at my certificate right now. And on the 14th of February, 2012, which also, incidentally, was my wife's birthday, I was uh, granted the uh, Certificate of Qualification. I'm a professional life coach. And I had that, what, six years ago now. And um, I, but during the training of becoming a coach, we obviously had to 
think about what niche, market niche we were going to look for for clients, and then to do some mock coaching sessions in our in our workshops. And so I, the first niche that I decided that I was going to look for was unmusical un, un parents with musical children. Of course, it didn't occur to me that no one was going to admit he was unmusical or that he needed help as a parent, but I didn't let that bother me. So, I, But I had to do several mock um, uh, coachings uh, for parents who had a musical child and were totally bewildered as to what to do. And uh, then the, and the, second, the second niche that I decided w w I would try to find was people who were bit by the performing bug and wanted to make a life as a performer, but were not able to cope with the fact that they all of a sudden discovered it doesn't pay the rent. And uh, so I did several sessions of uh, coaching these musicians, theoretically, uh, theoretical musicians, <laughs> uh, coaching them as to what to do if they wanted to perform as a way of life, but it didn't pay the rent. But of course, it didn't occur to me that if they couldn't pay the rent, they certainly weren't going to hire a coach. But yeah. so... <laughs> so my two my two niches didn't produce any clients whatsoever, but it did give me uh, and and documented in my computer uh, all the research and hard work I did to to pre prepare for these coaching sessions that I had to do at the boot camps. And it just and that stuff just sat on my computer. I mean, I thought nothing more about it because that was what four or five years ago, more than that, uh, six years ago, and. Um, so when I was sitting on the balcony uh, trying to help my um, friend who was having trouble with Les Mis, who turned out to be a publisher, um, I, he, and so I, I, I gave him what was on my computer, sort of, sort of some of the background material I had done for my sessions, and he said, that'll make a book. And so uh, I... <laughs> I I presented all that to him. He he chose an editor for me, and and uh, she wrote me. She was very sweet. She was very good. She would write with uh, however many pages she had done, and in the margin, tell me what she wanted me to do to fix it. And uh, uh, she said, "But you know, don't don't be in any hurry. Take a week if necessary." And of course, I was so excited that I sat down and did. I returned it done all within twenty four hours each time, and so. Over, I guess, a period of about three months, I ma managed to turn all the crap that was on my computer into, with the help of uh, this lovely um, editor, uh, turned it into, into the book. And what she was doing, what, what primarily was uh, forcing me to try to drag out of my own life examples of things that uh, uh, you know augmented what I was trying to say, and that's that's the way it happened, and. What I didn't know, of course, is that I would be bankrupt from from, from writing a book. I had no idea how expensive it was to write a book. <laughs> it can be, especially if it takes a long time to put it all together. Oh Lord! But I, I mean, I've got to, I've got to sell um, I've I, I've got to sell at least six hundred books to even break even. Yeah, that could take a while. I'm not sure if I've sold six hundred yet. So. <laughs> well, I don't expect to break even. I expect to die in debt. Fair enough. But but I've never been paid what I'm worth, so I'm going to increase the debt. 
<laughs> but I think you have actually made a convincing case for why people should check out your book. Uh, like, <laughs> like you, I've had a lot of things that didn't necessarily work out, and I've mostly documented all of those uh, successes and failures so that I could talk about them in my book, and I did. So Right. Well, it's, it's, uh, I'm looking forward to reading your book. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I'll have to send you a copy over. You do. But, uh, it's, it, or bring with it. I think it'd be better if you brought it. Ah, yes. Bring it over to Australia. Well, I'm definitely planning to go there at some point. So, yeah, but, but don't wait too long because I'm, I'm not that young. <laughs> right. Sooner <laughs> rather than later. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Okay. But, but that should be your credo anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. With everything. Hmm. <laughs> Now, in your book, you mentioned that as a musician, you might spend your entire life in anonymity. And I totally agree with you, but it sort of seems like a discouraging thought. So what do you mean by that? Well, for instance, uh, uh, David, can you name the six best oboists in the world? Not a chance. Nor, does, nor can anyone else. Yeah. And so if you're sitting as the principal oboe in a major orchestra and are recognized uh, among your colleagues as probably the world's best... And no one knows your name, no one knows your face, no one recognizes you on the street. Uh, what, and you, there's no way you can perform at your, at your maximum in any, in any field, as you're well aware, without ego. I mean, that's an absolute essential ingredient to perform. Mm -hmm. So how do you satisfy and get your ego when you've got a jerk standing on the box telling you how to play your instrument? Uh, or, what you, what, or asking you to play it in a way that you feel is really not what the, the, best, the best choice. Because, uh, of course, uh, this is one of the problems a conductor has. Looking at a, a wind section, you have a flute player who, um, you know, studied in New York, an oboist who studied in Paris, and a bassoon who studied in Germany, and a clarinetist who, of course, didn't study. And, uh, and then you've got to try to make, make some sort of unique sound and uh, the and uh, uh, with the the woodwinds regardless of what they feel because they, they they all of them will have played the repertoire you're conducting probably and everybody will have his own idea of how it should go and how it would be best to go and there you are standing on the box with your idea of what the composer wanted and you're you have to somehow find a way to convince all these musicians to do it your way rather than maybe the way they would prefer or the way they believe is part of the expression right. And uh, how do you go about it? And I, I know standing on the box, one of the major things that, that it, I face is stroking the ego of these players so to the extent that they will um, do their very best to do what I ask them to do. And uh, for instance, I'm, if you have an old boy who is the best in the world, his ego, I think, is uh, is satisfied by the fact that he knows he can play any any piece of music that's given him in any style and in any way whatsoever better than anybody else. And so, rather than his being uh, objecting to what's being asked of him because it's not what he would do naturally, he can enjoy. It's stroking his ego by saying, well, I know you're an idiot and you asked me to do this piece of crap, but I can do it better than anyone in the world. So listen to it. And that's the way I think people who work in anonymity uh, do stroke their egos is realizing. I mean, when I'm on the box, one of the first things I realize is there's not one person in that orchestra who can't play their instrument better than I can. 
Mm. And so, I mean, that's quite humbling to stand up and face 100 musicians, each of whom can do his job better than you can do it. And you're, and you're there to ask them to do it your way. And, uh, and you try to justify it because you, you had an affair with the composer and you know what he intended, you know. But uh, uh, so that's, that to me is one of the challenges. And also one of the exciting things to do is to um, use the, the, uh, uh, the talent and the uh, willingness of the, the players to do what you feel the composer intended, regardless of how they had did it the last time or how they would do it left to their own devices, and for them to be pleased because they managed to do what, what you wanted better than anyone else could have done it. Now, another thing you mentioned is that your personal relationships will have to write their own rules. Please expand on that. <laughs> well, the re reality as a conductor is that you live alone, mm. because because you you I mean you you have to you have to try to be friendly with the with the entire orchestra, but you can't uh, join a, a a group or a clique within the orchestra because every orchestra is full of of groups who don't like other groups, and and you know murders the order of the day. And so you have to be very careful that you're not associated with any particular clique or clacks in the orchestra, and that to a degree you treat everyone equally, accepting the fact that the concertmaster is the boss of the orchestra musically, and the princip their principles and sub-principles and blah, 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 and the, the whole pecking order has to uh, be recognized and used. But you can't go out to dinner with one of them, and you have to be very careful that uh, I, I mean, you know, the, the number of the number of, of affairs that I supposedly have had because someone caught me having a cup of coffee with one of the members of the orchestra, and uh, this is just, you know, this is it's just so you really and truly have to find a way to not associate with any particular group or person within the orchestra, and uh, as best you can, sort of treat them all equally, because. It's it's uh, and so uh, what I do to to be which has been my, my way because look as a conductor I basically live out of a suitcase in, in airplanes and hotel rooms and so uh, I'm, when I go to a, a city to, at an orchestra where I've never been of course I'm anxious to have some sort of human contact other than the the, the mirror in in the bathroom and uh, <laughs> and so I. Uh, I ha I ha my favorite hobby is the, the game of bridge. I love playing bridge, and particularly competitive bridge. I, I, and I'm quite a good bridge player. And and with my regular partners, I have two regular partners, and and we play basically play tournaments because I don't just go play bridge. I go out and play it with uh, you know with the cutthroat stuff. And so I phone the local bridge club wherever I am and give them my credentials because bridge is based on a master point scheme give them my credentials and they find me a partner and I go play bridge and in whatever language that people talk it doesn't matter because bridge is easy to play with a stranger and once you decide what system you're going to play and and that's the way I have human contact when I'm traveling and, and sometimes even develop friendships within the, the bridge world but I certainly try to avoid uh, anything that can be uh, misunderstood so far as the orchestra itself is concerned now we've talked quite a bit about music to this point and the life of a conductor and a musician and so forth but another thing i certainly have some interest in is this whole thing about being a life coach 
So as a life coach, what's the number one thing you see getting in the way of people living a happy and fulfilling life? Well, people have grown up, um, in, in Western society at least, um, parents think that the, 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 ch- the child must have a better life than they had, which means get a <clears throat> university degree or, or two or three or four, get a good, good paying job, uh, have a house, two children, a mortgage, a caravan, and a, a car or two, and um, at 65 start living. <laughs> and mm-hmm. this, this, of course, is, is why I think there are so many people who are struggling to be what they would consider content or happy or, or fulfilled or whatever the words are. And, and, the, uh, uh, and so as a coach, primarily, uh, I mean, we we have to be very careful because because people tend to think of a life coach as a, um, a counselor. We're not. We don't give advice ever. And what we well, my job as a coach is to help you if you're a client of mine to help you face your block your blockages. And when you recognize them, help you get rid of them, because m- many of your blockages will go back to your childhood, if you're not, if un- unless you know how to get rid of them, and uh, it really help you, uh, but just by the uh, the uh, material we have to work with, help you find what your real um, uh, happiness is, what it would be, and uh, and. We do that really by asking questions. We never, ever give advice. And also, I don't believe in uh, uh, judgmental language. I never use good or bad, right or wrong, any of those judgmental words, because that's, that's, the, that's the antithesis of what happiness is. And uh, eventually, uh, if, if the, because we have written material, uh, divided into oh, some 20 different fields, you know, relationships, self-esteem, blah, 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 on and on and on. And so when I have a client who wants to work on some particular problem, and uh, then the, we have a series of uh, lessons or units that we call that they go through. In other words, I send them the unit and they do the, the exercise and send it back to me and I I uh, uh, make notes and, and ask questions, send it back, and and eventually we move on to the next unit. And uh, uh, but it's all material that the uh, you, the Beyond Success, the organization I trained with, pre- has prepared. I mean, I've got a zillion pages of of material covering every possible problem and and question mark that people have in every area that they're concerned about. And uh, it's just a matter of hopefully guiding them through the, the uh, exercises to find for themselves what their problems are, what their blockages are, and what their dreams are, and what really makes them happy. And, um, you know, it takes a while in Western society to convince someone that just getting a bigger boat isn't going to make you happy, <laughs> and, that, and that if you have a Chevrolet, then get a Mercedes. That's not going to make you happy because you'll want a Bentley, you know. And it's uh, once once you recognize that uh, you, you don't have to have a mortgage and you don't have to have two children. You don't have to have a, an extra r- freezer. You, all sorts of things you don't have to have. But what you do have to have is the awareness of what your your um, um, goal is, what ma- what makes you happy, what your dream is, and, uh, and do it. 
and it, it, it's not going, as, as I said in the book, it's not going often to be producing a white picket fence. But instead, you have to have the courage. And this is where I feel very lucky because as a human being and professionally, I have many, many times not been able to pay the rent as a musician, even though I'm the best one in the world. And people just don't hire me. And so what do I do if, if I have family responsibilities and can't pay the rent as a musician? And so my other string is I'm a, a qualified and very good legal stenographer. In fact, when I left my position at the university here in, in Melbourne a few years ago, I began fairly, fairly soon to run out of money. And so I went to back to the uh, uh, law firm uh, where uh, one of the partners I'd worked with for five years ago or so. And I went back and did 15 months as the executive assistant to a partner in a law firm. And uh, that pays the rent. And actually, I do it well. And consequently, I, my ego is, is stroked, stroked. And in this particular situation, because I'm such an old fart, uh, it, it, I, I, I get to be known because no one believes anyone my age can still walk, much less do a job as, 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 as an assistant. So I have, in my own life, found my happiness as being a musician, and I don't worry if I can't pay the rent because I can always phone the agency that I'm registered with and say, give me, give me a, get me a gig as a secretary. And fortunately, my skills are such that I usually uh, have a job within a day. Because I, it was very funny when I went for this this job that I that I have since left. I, I was sort of surprised when the when the uh, HR department said, well, you have to take a typing test. And I said, oh, okay. So, well, of course, you can do it on computers now. At home, you don't have to go in and type in front of them. And I, I was in good form that day, and I typed 97 words a minute for 10 minutes with no errors. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, but, I mean, I know I had the skills uh, of uh, – because I, 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 when I was in graduate school in New York um, at, at Juilliard – the way I way I paid the rent was I was an organist in a reform synagogue in the Bronx and organist and choir director at a Dutch Reformed Church in New Jersey. And uh, when I needed more money, I uh, registered with a uh, temporary agency, and they would send me to you know the, on Wall Street the the tapping pool runs 24 hours a day, and I used to go do a midnight to eight o'clock session on Wall Street as a typist. Uh, when I need, needed extra money in, in, in when I was in school in, in New York, and so it served me very well that that I developed this skill because I had a crush on the commercial teacher in high school, Miss Macmillan. I remember her name. <laughs> and so I took typing in shorthand as a course in high school in uh, Arkansas, and uh, and fortunately because I enjoyed it and I got to go to her class, her classes. I'm, I have excellent typing skills, and I don't. And of course, no one uses shorthand anymore, so I've lost all of that. But even for a while, I I learned the stenograph, the, you know, the machine the the court reporters use, and I I did some court reporting in in New York, but I hated that, so I stopped all that. Well, it's definitely good to have some skills outside of music. I think my 
top skills would mostly revolve around the computer, such as graphic design, web design, creating and writing content and things like that. But what you described earlier with the traditional model of success, you know, it's, it is surprising that so many people still subscribe to it. And I think some people might be happy following that path of going to a good school, getting good grades, getting a good job, and then working their way up the corporate ladder. But as you say, it's not necessary. I think there are more people embracing an unconventional life, especially now with the internet and all the opportunities that exist. Although your example shows that we also need to be careful because internet marketing can actually cause us to go broke if we don't do it the right way. <laughs> it certainly can. And I, I, I can bear witness to that. I was very good at it, and I spent untold hours doing it, but my God, it cost me. Yeah, I think my coach, James Franco, at one point was uh, spending seven, $800 on advertising every single day. <laughs> I think it was by mistake that, he, right. yeah, he didn't intend to spend that much. And it's like, whoa, yeah, that is a lot of money to just see going out. I'm sure, you know, you could get a few sales, a few conversions out of that, but there's no guarantees. None at all. Yeah. If there was uh, one piece of advice you could pass on to young people listening to this, what would it be? find your passion and follow it hmm. well that means that's not wrongly said uh, e examine your world your life and when you know what your dream is do it and don't worry about anything because there's always a way to pay the rent there's, you're always going to find something to eat and uh, you can always uh, leave an affair and, ha and go to have a different set of problems I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing that, that, I mean, you know, one of the things that I find with my clients coaching is probably the single most obvious thing that happens to many of them is they end up leaving their job mm -hmm. because they, they found themselves in the Western society's idea of, of a good life. Uh, they have a good paying job you know, uh, uh, and they're paying rent and, and uh, they have a car and they have a refrigerator and they have a child or two and this is the perfect life and they realize that they, they hate it. It's not really what they want to do at all. And even sometimes fairly, well, I mean, I guess one of the most dramatic cases I had as a client was he was a, a, a carpenter, a builder, and a very successful one and um, was uh, had Falling madly in love, and <clears throat> his girlfriend was pregnant, so they got married. And he was going to make a house for them, and he, all this, that, and the other. And through uh, through the coaching sessions, just listening to him and 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 um, doing my doing my job, it ended up that he discovered and admitted out loud in a, in a session. Because as a coach, not only do we do written things, I I, I have a, a Skype session at least once a month. And he admitted that his real passion was a tattooing. He wanted to be a tattoo artist. And I said, well, then why don't you do it? And so he he went down and, and uh, uh, took, a, took, took an apprenticeship at the local t tattoo parlor and uh, became uh, very, very good at it, and got a wonderful job. And he was the happiest man on earth, because he had fa he had found his niche, and uh, 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 stuck to it. And you know that was a great surprise to me, because it never would never have occurred to me that anyone would want to be a tattoo artist. <laughs> yeah. But it, this is this is the sort of thing that, that that happens. I mean, and another client I had who who was being pressed, he he had just finished high school, 
And he'd been, he's being pressed by his parents to go to the university, which he didn't want to do. He was a, a gym junkie and a, a, you know, a fitness freak, and he really wanted to be a, a personal trainer. But uh, his parents didn't like that at all, and uh, uh, blah, 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 blah. So we went through quite a thing. And then all of a sudden, for I don't know how it happened, but he, he uh, decided that he was going to get a job and move out of home. And so he went and uh, got a job working for uh, helping train seeing eye dogs, you know, for the blind people. And he actually fell in love with the, 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 the job and the good that it did, making the, you know, training the dogs for these people who needed, needed them. And so he's, he's become a professional dog trainer for, for the blind and happy beyond belief and, and accepted by his parents finally. But I mean, these are the things that happen to me as a coach that are so exciting is when you just by being there, being there for them and giving them the right material to work with and think about, they discover what they really want in life and how it doesn't matter as long as it doesn't matter what they have to do as long as they get what they want. Because I mean, I don't object at all going into a law firm on a daily basis and sitting at a computer and answering the phone all day and, and trying to be useful if that's what I have to do to pay the rent. I, I, I enjoy it and I enjoy doing it as well as I can. Mm-hmm. But I also know the entire time that I'm really a musician and uh, that when that opportunity comes, I'll drop everything else. But in the meantime, I've got to eat. Well, I, 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 I pretend I've got to eat at least, but I'm afraid <laughs> it shows I eat too much. Well, yeah, and... I like your advice for sure to find something that you care about and creating a a vision around it and pursuing it. Because I talk about this a little bit in my upcoming book, Flashes of Elation, but basically I say, God's not going to descend from the clouds and announce in a booming voice, this is what you were meant to do. It's not going to happen. (laughs) It's just not going to happen. There's no instruction manual to life. So it's up to you to figure out what it is you want to do. And it all just ends up being a choice. Right. And of course, one of the most difficult choices that, that people make is, is they all, almost invariably find that their blockages are because they've been told by parents or well-meaning people uh, nonsense and what to do that really doesn't make any sense. And the, the dilemma they have is, you know, alienating friends and parents and the like by doing their thing against the, against the good, well-meaning advice. And it's a real problem for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and, but the, the excitement as a coach is when you actually witness in a conversation the excitement in the voice when they actually make the decision to follow their dream. Mm-hmm. They become a different person overnight. Because you know we have we have a zillion ways of helping them get to that point if if that's where they're going to go, but uh, uh, it's a revelation to them, and it's wonderful to see. Yeah, I think I've heard of this before. I can't remember exactly how many seconds, but it was. We'll say the three three seconds. It's the three second miracle, the moment that you take complete responsibility for your life. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, <laughs> that's when everything changes for sure. It's, it's amazing. And, and, and what's so crazy is it's so easy and we spend so much time and effort ignoring it. It's true. Yeah, we want to blame other people and other things and circumstances and events for everything we're going through. Indeed, indeed. I mean, I have a whole list of, of enemies that, are, you know, that, that, that have 
kept me from going down the golden path. Hmm. Wow. Well, but my father said, make sure you choose your enemies well, because there's certain people you don't want to ever speak well of you. (laughs) (laughs) Choose your enemies well, yeah, and keep them close, right? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) That's great. So I'm wondering if there's any books that have inspired you or helped you on your journey. Yes, there is one book, and I I even quoted him at the end of my book, I think, Hmm. is um, The the Prophet, uh, uh, Gibran, the the, uh, Lebanese poet. Hmm. In fact, I have a copy of it here on my, on my desk. I, I always have a copy of The Prophet around somewhere. Because, it, I don't know why, but everything that, that's in, in that book actually somehow speaks to me and makes sense. I mean, you know, the, the, idea, the, uh, the idea that he has that, that life is, is, is basically a pendulum and that in, that it, in order to swing to, toward the good side, you, you have to go as the equal distance on the bad side. So you have to be, you know, have to be miserable, quite terribly miserable to be terribly happy as, as the pendulum swings. And uh, there's no way you can live only on, on one side of the pendulum. Mm-hmm. And uh, that to me is, and he talks about the pain of too much tenderness, you know, and little things like that. And for instance, the quote that I, I have in, in the book, which I won't, won't probably won't say precisely word for word, but that it's if you can't work with love, it's better to go, give up work, go sit in the, at the on the at, the at the door of the temple, and uh, ask for all, ask for money from people who are working with love, because it's better that than to work without love. Because as he says, work is love made visible. Yeah, that's profound right there. Uh, it's stunning, absolutely stunning. And the book and the prophet is is one after another because it's divided into areas. You know, oh, speak to us of family, speak to us of love, speak to us of death, speak to us of this, that, and the other. And there's a two or three pages on each subject. And it's just, well, I mean, it's it, 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 my father introduced me to it because he referred to it in sermons occasionally, and uh, he, he actually gave me a copy of the book at some birthday or another. And uh, I can't say it changed my life, but it certainly has given it a great depth and meaning, which it didn't have before the book. Hmm. That's fantastic. Well, this has been a great conversation. Is there anything else I should have asked? Well, I don't want to go on record saying what you could have asked, but never mind. (laughs) (laughs) But when we meet, we'll discuss it. Oh, yeah. I'm sure there's plenty more we could talk. We could go on and on, no doubt. Well. Thank you so much for your time and your generosity, Dobbs. Oh, David, it's a, a, a real delight. I mean, I, I, I thoroughly enjoy talking with you. And, of course, nothing gives me more pleasure than talking about myself. So, uh, <laughs> of course. <laughs> so, you know, you've, you've really goosed my day, and I'm, I'm thrilled about that. And um, we, will, we will meet, if not before heaven, we'll at least meet in heaven. Sounds great to me. Let's okay. let's do it. Okay, but if you, if you if you will practice your swimming skills, come on over. <laughs> I'm not a bad swimmer. Maybe just a little more work. Okay. See you then. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Make sure to go to musicentrepreneurhq.com for show notes and other goodies, and leave us a review in iTunes to help us spread the word. 